Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I I thank you, Lord, for your grace in our life. Father, that we can sing about our sinfulness, about our sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross. Oh, Lord, what a wonderful thought. What a wonderful thought that we sing about and we praise you for. Lord, that's the only way we can approach you because you are a righteous and holy God. Lord, we thank you for taking care of this sin problem that we have. And Lord, for making it possible, for, for allowing us to have a relationship with you, not just a relationship, but being in your family. What precious thoughts, what wonderful thoughts, lofty thoughts for us. Lord, who are we that you would even take notice of us? Lord, we just thank you. We are so blessed. You are so kind and gracious. Thank you for letting us be together today. Now I pray, Lord, as we spend time in your word, that you would be honored and glorified. May we come away with a a broader, a clearer understanding of this passage for your honor, for your glory. Lord, help it to work its way out into our lives. Help us to, to glean from it, to learn from it, that we be changed by it. We thank you for the worship that we've already experienced this morning and and just allowing our lives to be worshipped to you. It's, it's so minimal, Lord, for us just to sing about you and to go out and do nothing. But it's so wonderful that you will you see our lives as worship to you. And Lord, our whole lives, want, we want to be dedicated to you. you. You deserve all of us, not just on Sunday. We thank you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We will look at the entire chapter as a, as a, a whole. It is not necessarily a unit. It's made up of uh, really kind of a lot of segments, a lot of paragraphs, a lot of, of uh, individual units that, that kind of make up a larger picture here that uh, the author John is, is wanting us to see. Statistically, I, I heard a statistic this week that uh, three-fourths of America, one, uh, uh, three-fourths of America, 75% of Americans believe that religion has no impact on our country today. That's just staggering. We've always been a, a country that, that the church has had some kind of impact in our world and on our culture, but it seems that we have very little to no impact, and people see that. That religion in general has no impact or influence on our culture here in America today. It's a demonstration of two things. One, it's a demonstration of the sinful heart. It's not that we don't have truth. It's not that truth is not all around us and that the Bible is not being proclaimed. It's just a demonstration of the power of sin in our lives. The power of sin in people's life. In our neighbors' lives, and the people that we, we work with, the people that we come in contact with, they are under the control of sin and being enslaved with sin. But it's also a, a demonstration of, of our churches, the churches here in America. We have a lot of churches that are mega churches, big churches, and they're, they're doing all kinds of incredible things, great things, a lot of gimmicks, really, um, to, to try to get people in, and they're doing everything that's possible, but it's really showing that they're very, having very little impact. In fact, in the past 10, 15, 20 years, we found that to be true. Back in the 90s, when we were appealing, and we, we were doing anything to get people into the churches, and... Uh, uh, we found now that those people that came in, they just stayed a short time, and it was not beneficial at all, really. It didn't really in- make any disciples from that. And that's what we're called to do, is make disciples, not just fill our pews. That's a good thing to have pews filled. That's a good thing. We do want that. 
But it does demonstrate of the, lack, the, the church's inability to impact the world. And you have to wonder what kind of gospel is being preached. You have to, what, what kind of words and message is being out there if it does not have a power to, to change lives. Now, let me refresh your memory a little bit about John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, uh, coming up to this point, Jesus has presented himself as the Messiah that was to come. And Jesus is claiming to be that Messiah. More than that, even, he is the very Son of God, and the nation is at a crucial point. And it comes down to whether they are going to believe in him or whether they're going to reject him. Believing in him or not believing in him. And it comes down, there's a couple of elements to that. There's a couple of, of issues that they have. Number one is his origin. Where is he from? Well, if we're going to believe him, we have to know where he's from. And so Christ has made that clear, and he makes that clear in this passage. But they have a, a couple of things. They, they see him coming from Galilee. They're thinking on the physical level. And uh, they also see, well, we know this man's parents. You know, how can he be the Messiah? His origin, it just doesn't have it. Christ points back to his origin as being from heaven, from his heavenly Father. And that leads to the second issue. The second issue is his authority. And when you have the, his origin, you understand that he is from his heavenly Father. The authority issue works its way out. It's, it's all clear there. But he heals a man on the, man on the Sabbath day. And, and uh, they say, well, what authority do you have to do that? And he explains that a little bit in this passage. Just briefly, but it's, it's kind of things that we already know. And it, but he's clarifying it. He's, he's proclaiming it. He's, he's, uh, he's establishing the fact of his origin and his... Uh, or really reestablishing the fact of his origin and his authority. Now... John is kind of recording for us the climate in Jerusalem about six months before Christ's death. If you will, it's kind of like a, um, a straw poll before the election. And this is about six months before Christ's death. And John is giving us, well, here's what Jerusalem is like. And this was at the time of the feast, the Feast of Booths. And we'll, we'll see that in just a minute. But uh, he, he's just letting us know what's going on. And he gives us all of the different people groups here. And it's kind of like a, a political campaign. You have those who are extremely opposed to Christ, staunchly opposed to him. They hate him. They, they're wanting to kill him. But then you also have those who, who love him, who embrace him, who believe in him. But the majority of the people are undecided. They're the moderates. They're, they're the ones that have not uh, made up their mind yet. They're, they're kind of the, the uh, maybe the uninformed, the, the easily persuaded. They could go one way or the other way. It doesn't really matter. Maybe the confused, um, the indecisive. That's, that's, that's the majority. And you have the people that are against Christ. They want to sway the the crowd and Christ himself needs to sway the crowd his way. And you kind of see those things happening in this this passage. And and John wants us to see all of the dynamics here. And there's a lot of them. But the nation of Israel is at a, a pivotal point. And I don't think they even understand how important this decision is, whether to believe in Christ or reject Christ. They're kind of taking the decision kind of haphazardly, not not really taking it seriously. But it's a pivotal point in the nation's history. They're going to make a decision. And it reminds me of an earlier time when Elijah was on the earth, the prophet, and he brings all of the prophets of Baal up to Mount Carmel, and he says, this is the deciding point. And he says to, uh, to them, he says, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? The Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. But the people, and here's the response of the people, but the people did not answer him a word. That's kind of where they were. They, they didn't, you know, he's putting it to them. This is important. You need to follow God or you need to follow Baal, but you need to decide. And the, and the people, oh, well, we don't know. We don't know. 
And that's kind of where you are. It's where the, where the children of Israel are, the, or the, the, the nation of Israel. That You have the, the majority in the middle. They could go one way or the other way. Now, it hinges on one word. And it's, and it's really the whole climate here, and that climate is unbelief. And the one word is belief. It hinges on belief in Christ. And that is so important. You, you know what? I see our country today is at this pivotal point. And the key word for the day is belief. Belief in Christ. It seems like that we have a, an America now that is rejecting Christ. Very subtly. They wouldn't say that. That's exactly what's happening. They are rejecting Christ. You can hear it. We'll hear this in, in the sarcasm and in the doubt. This unbelief. Now, this is a, a climate of unbelief that John set for us at the end of chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, verse 66. He says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They really didn't believe. They followed him for a little while, but they decided, no, we, this is too heavy for us, too much for us. We're, we're not going, we're not going to follow him anymore. It hinged on belief. They did not believe ultimately. And what we'll see in this passage here is this, this hostility toward Christ that Jesus faced, all of this hatred and all of this this political maneuvering was because of unbelief. That's really the root cause of this. Unbelief is the hostility, is, is the root cause and the source, really, of the hostility that we have today. Now, there's a lot of things that the, that the world doesn't like about us, but it really comes down to unbelief. They do not believe. Everything hinges on that. Faith and trust in Christ. Belief must be based upon truth, so, so truth must, to be, must be gotten out there. there. We must have truth. We must present truth to them, but it comes down to unbelief. How much truth do you need? How much evidence? How many, how many miracles does it take for, for Christ to, uh, to convince them? How many sermons does it take? They've had enough. Now it's time to believe. Now it's time to, to make a decision. That's the bare minimum of being a Christian is belief, belief in Christ. We call ourselves believers. Now, Jesus was rejected. They didn't like Jesus, not because of his preaching. They liked his preaching. He was amazing. He, they didn't reject him because of his, he was unattractive or because he wouldn't do any more miracles for them, or because he wouldn't feed them anymore, they rejected him because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. And we can, we can look at this and we can see, yes, it was, it's because, of, because they, they were rejecting Christ. N- not all of the, the little things around him, not all of the, the little skirmishes, but they at the core of it was unbelief. Now here's what I want us to see today. You'll see it on the, on the screen. Is the world hated and rejected Christ, the world's hatred and rejected of, rejection of Christ was because of their unbelief. Therefore, the first step toward Christ must be belief. And he said, well, that's a simple statement. I mean, we already know that. But I want you to see that worked out and how important that is. The question we'll look at and answer today is, what is the church to do in the midst of rejection and unbelief? That's exactly what was happening here. Christ was being rejected. He was not being believed. And what did he do? What was his model? How did he react? Because, folks, that's the world that we're living in. That's the world that we're living in. They are slowly rejecting any kind of religion, but more particularly Christ. So in this straw poll that that John has taken, and he's, he's kind of given us this glimpse here of what's happening in Jerusalem about six months before, we see three major people groups. Three major people groups, and that's the way we'll just break down the passage. And it's kind of hit and miss. It's kind of all over the place, but I want you to see these three major people groups. First of all, let's look at the enemies of Christ. 
the enemies of Christ. This would be the Jews, the Pharisees, and the the chief priests. Look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. Now, walking is not just walking. He was he was performing his miracle, his uh, his ministry in Galilee. If you remember up, his disciples withdrew and were no longer walking with him. He was walking only in Galilee. He was his ministry was in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews, the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews, they were his enemies. They were the extreme. It wasn't, it wasn't, there weren't very many. There was a handful. But they hated Christ. They were going to kill him. They did not like him at all. Look at verse 32. They anticipated him coming up to the feast and they sent out officers. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, about Christ. And the the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now that's the two major groups. Now they normally did not work together. But in this situation they did. And they sent the temple guards, the officers, to seize him, it says. They hated Christ. But they were the dominant influence in in this culture. They were the religious leaders. The dominant influence. I want you to see this in verse 12. They had an agenda, by the way. Look, let me, let me pick up verse 45 first. The officers, so they sent these officers, and the officers came back. The officers then came to the chief priests, in verse 45, uh, and Pharisees, and they said to them, why do you bring him? Or why did you not bring him? They, they came without him. They came back to the Pharisees without him. And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They were astonished. They were amazed to hear this guy. Are you sure you got the right guy? I mean, he's, he's amazing. He's a great speaker. And so they go back empty-handed. That, that was... I don't know. That was kind of foolish, really. But, they, but it shows how amazed they were. It actually shows the hand of God, really, in this circumstances. Well, the Pharisees, you could see the response that they had. They were, uh, they were very angry with these men. They had an agenda. The decision had been made. He must die. They were going to kill him. Look over at uh, verse 12. Verse 12 and 13. There was much grumbling among the crowd concerning him. Some of the... Uh, Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no. On the contrary, he he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. For fear of these enemies. For fear of these spiritual leaders. They they wouldn't even talk about him in public because of the, the hatred. Because of the agenda of the scribes and the Pharisees. Or the these religious leaders, the chief priests. Uh, they, they were threatened by his ministry and they were very jealous of his ministry. We see that in verse 47. Um, the way they responded to the officers uh, the, that came back, the, uh, the Pharisees then answered them, you have not have been led astray, have you? You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him, has he? They kind of set themselves as the standard as opposed to God's word being the standard. They're the standard. They are jealous of his ministry. They are threatened of his ministry. And it came down to the one word, believe. They, none of the Pharisees believed in him. Pharisees don't believe. So why would you guys, why would you guys follow him? Now look at the next verse, verse 49. For the, this crowd, this crowd does not know the law, this crowd, um, but this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. And Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, he was a Pharisee, said to them, Our law does not judge a man until it first hears from him and knows him what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also a Galilee, from Galilee, are you? 
Search the scriptures and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They were misinformed. They really didn't even know the scriptures themselves very well. But yet they set themselves up as the standards as opposed to God's word being the standard. And the key element there is they did not believe. They did not believe. Now let's, let's think about this a little bit. They were part of this world's system. This world's system that is being controlled by Satan. And they were willing participants. They, they enjoyed their role that they were playing. They were playing the role of the enemy and that's what they did. They played it well. Look at chapter 8. Just turn over one chapter. Chapter 8, verse 43. Here's what Jesus says about this same group. Verse 43 says, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my words. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the, from the beginning and does uh, not... Stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Listen, you are, you are a willing participant. These, these leaders were willing participants in, in Satan's big scheme. They were being controlled by Satan. But yet at the same time, they were doing what they wanted to do. Their ministry th- felt threatened. They were jealous. And they're going to react. They're going to respond. But at the same time, they were being, being led about by Satan. Satan was in complete control of this whole situation. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. And in fact, all of us really could be put in this, this category of sons of disobedience. Being led about by, by Satan. Look at chapter 12. You're in John. John chapter 12, verse 31. Says it like this. Now, judgment is upon this world, this world, this world's sinful system that's being controlled by Satan. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Some point in time, Satan will be cast out. He will no longer be the the ruler of this world. But you know what? Satan, (laughs) Satan is God's Satan. He is under God's thumb. He, he thinks he is in control. He is in control. God allows him um, these things. But at the same time, Satan himself is God's pond. And he's doing exactly... He's fooling Satan. God is fooling Satan every time Satan turns around. And these people, these enemies of Christ, they were just pawns. They were just individuals. So they will give complete account, be completely accountable for their actions. But at the same time, we look back and we see the big picture that God has orchestrated this whole thing. And Satan is right there in the mix. But they are just responding, reacting by their sinful nature, just what sinful sinners do. That's what they do by nature. They're consistent with their nature. That's what Jesus was pointing out to them. They wanted to do this. That's the way they were made. They were, they, were just, they were just doing what comes naturally. They were enemies and they were playing it to the hilt. How do we respond to that as, as believers? What do we do with this? You will have enemies. The church will have enemies. We will we'll have enemies. If you stand for Christ, you will have enemies. Titus chapter 3 Paul tells Titus, or Paul, yeah, Paul tells Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So in that kind of environment, when you have opposition, look, here's what you, here's what you do. You, you, you be submissive to those who are in authority. Be ready for every good work. Verse 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's, that's the response. God has a bigger picture. He is in control of these things. And these enemies of Christianity, they are pawns of Satan. And they will be held accountable someday. As Satan himself will. <clears throat> now, here's what, as a church, we just need to make sure 
that we're not offensive in some other way. If the world is going to be offended by us, if we're going to make enemies of the world, we need to make sure that it's not just by something silly or something stupid or just something that, uh, that we are, um, you know, just our own character flaws by our own offensive personality. If something's going to offend, it should be the gospel. They need to be rejecting Christ. If, if something's going to offend them, it should be a godly lifestyle. And it will. You go out there. You live a godly lifestyle. You seek to preach the gospel and you will offend a world and you will make enemies. Now, how do we respond to them? Well, we just, we just keep preaching the gospel. The key is for them to believe. We just keep preaching the gospel and holding up a good standard, a holy and righteous standard before the world. That's just what we do. It's what Christ did. Now, let's move on. So you have the enemies. They're playing their role. Look at the, look at the bigger crowd, the majority in the middle, the undecided Now, this would include his brothers. He talks about his brothers. This includes part of the crowd. It includes people from Jerusalem, uh, Nicodemus, the officers. They were not opposed. They weren't enemies. But they were just undecided. We don't know. We don't know. Look uh, Look at verse number two. Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, were near. And the Feast of Booths was one of the Jewish uh, holidays. It was one of three. And uh, according to Josephus, it was the, the most favored of the holidays. The Jews loved to get together for this. It was a celebration of, of lights and actually water, uh, both two elements there. But uh, it was a result of them coming out of Egypt and living in tents for all of that time. And so what they would do is erect booths like little tents. If they lived in the city, they would build a little booth or a little tent on top of their rooftop and they would live out of doors and it would be a reminder for what God has done for them and allowing them to come out of Egypt. So they would celebrate this. And it was a big time and it would be a week-long event. Now, verse 3, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may see your, your works which you are doing. Now, he has been in Galilee. Galilee is just off the beaten path. It's not, it's not where everybody's going to uh, see his miracles. And he's not going to get a lot of attention. And he said, they said, you need to go up there. That's where all the people are. You don't need to be in an obscure place like this. But you can hear some of the sarcasm. You can hear some of the jabs. Your disciples, they said in verse 4, for you, for no one does anything in secret when he seeks to be known publicly. They're kind of pushing him out there. Jesus says, it's not my time yet, but they're pushing him out there. What are they expecting? They're probably expecting the same thing the world is expecting, some kind of political savior, some kind of uh, uh, a person that's going to come in and and set up a, a, a physical kingdom. And so they're saying, hey, if that's what it is, man, get up there, get Get going. The people are in Jerusalem. You need to go in, usher yourself as as their Messiah, and they will accept you and all will be well. But here's the key. Here's the key in verse 5. For even his brothers, for even his brothers were not, what? Believing. They did not believe. That was the key element. They were not believing in him. So Jesus said to him, my time is not yet here. But, but your time is always opportune. Now, this is, inc- this is important. Look what he says, verse 7. The world cannot hate you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. They were, they were unbelievers just like the world. They identified with the world. The world doesn't hate its own. It's part of the world's system. They're part of that family. He says, going up to to the uh, feast yourself. He says, my time has not yet come. There's a lot of elements in there. These brothers, where do they fit? Well, they've not yet believed. They they weren't necessarily being antagonistic and being mean. But yet they weren't on his side. They were undecided. They had not believed yet. 
This is a major stumbling block for people. It is hard to believe. His brothers saw this. Now, I want you to see how important this is. Turn over to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I want you to see what has to happen for somebody to believe. You think, man, his brothers, they see all of this. They, they, they know what he can do. But here's what has to happen. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the children born of Him. That's the, the other children, the people in, his, in the family. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. Look at verse 4. For whatever is born of God, that would be us, that would be believers, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. They have to overcome the world. His brothers had not yet overcome the world. They are still being tripped up by Satan's schemes, the lies that he tells, the lies that are being fed by by this world, which is being fed by Satan himself, and, and it's all under his control, and they were believing into it. And it's hard to overcome that. No, it is impossible to overcome that. And this is the victory. Look at verse, the middle of verse 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? What's the victory that's overcome the world? The, our faith. Our faith. It takes faith. It's not a logical process that the world just has to come. Well, logically, it all makes sense. And so, so they just believe. No, this is hard to overcome. And it takes what? It takes faith. Not just a natural faith. This is a supernatural faith that comes from God. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift from God. It takes faith, and that faith comes from God. And so it's, it's, it's overcoming this huge obstacle that's impossible on a natural level to overcome. And it takes the supernatural work of God in somebody's heart, producing faith, and then they, then they believe. So you have the brothers there. They should see everything. And on a natural level, you should, they, would, they would be the first to believe. But that was the problem. They were still on the natural level. They were still seeing what the rest of the world was seeing. Look at, uh, back to John, 7, John 17. Look at John 17, verse 14. <clears throat> Take this one step further. We are not any longer of the world. We're not really in the world any longer. John chapter 17, verse 14. I have given them your word and Jesus, in his high priestly bear, he's talking to his father, God, and he is talking about the disciples, those who, those who follow him, those who love him, those who believe in him. I have given them your word, and the world, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Listen, they are in the world system. But they're not part of the world system. They're out of the world system. They've got a, a changed heart. They've overcome the world system because of faith that we have given them. They are new people. They're not like the world. They're not part of that world's family. The world hates them now. So, so Lord, just take care of them. God, take care of them. Keep them from the evil one, from Satan. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. And I sanctify them. I set them apart or set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. Isn't that a wonderful picture? That's a wonderful picture of what belief is. Overcoming the world and the world system. And it takes supernatural faith. It takes an act of God to be able to do that. It's important that we see this. It's important that we understand and know that the world is not rejecting the church because we are intolerant. Okay? That's, that's a thing that they're saying today. Well, we're intolerant. If the church would be more tolerant, then we would like them. That's not true. We don't need to compromise that. That's not going to get us anywhere. 
we're not being rejected because of our high standards of uh, uh, maybe in the area of, of sexual promiscuity or, or homosexuality or abortion. We don't need to compromise our standards. We do that, the, the world's not going to change because of that. The world's not rejecting us because we're keeping them from sin. Now, there's a little bit of that. There, uh, there's some guilt there uh, as we set forth a, a, an example to the world. There should be some, some guilt, some, some twinges of guilt of the world that they see our examples. But the foremost thing that the world, the reason the world is rejecting us is because of unbelief. They just simply do not believe. And it takes the power of God at work in their life to overcome that, this world's sinful thinking, which is set up by Satan and all of his lies. Listen, therefore, the battle is on a spiritual plane and the battle is won and lost through prayer. Through prayer. And through the power of the gospel. Now go back to John chapter 7. Let's look at one more group, people group. This is the friendly. So we've seen the, the enemies of Christ, and we've seen the majority undecisive, not really knowing what's going on, just kind of uninformed, really not really caring. They see the miracles. And he sounds like a good guy. His preaching is incredible, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It seems so crystal clear to us as believers, but it takes a, a work of God in their life. But there are some. There are some that are friendly. And they're kind of on two different levels. Look at verse 12. There, are some, uh, there was much grumbling among the crowd. So you have the crowd. Some of the crowd were friendly to Christ. Some of the crowd um, concerning Him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no. On the contrary, he's leading people astray. And yet they didn't speak openly of him. But they were friendly. They were friendly to Christ. He sounds good. It sounds like a great message. He could do these pretty amazing things. So, so they would maybe be followers. They, they would be casual listeners. But there's another group here in verse 31 but many of the crowd believed in him. And that's the key. That's what changes everything. They believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than this man has. Will he? Look, they come to the conclusion, we've heard enough of the truth. We've seen enough of the evidence. We're going to believe. We're going to commit. And we recognize that as really a work of God, a work of God in their life. And that, that submission to the truth, that, that willingness to, to, uh, to follow Christ. Where does that come from? It comes from, from God. Look at verse 17. I want you to point out one thing here. If anyone is willing, this is what Christ said, if anyone is willing, because they're hearing His teaching, and they, they don't quite understand it. But he says, if anyone is willing to do his will, that's God's will, he will know of my teaching or of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether it is spoken of myself. Listen, if you would submit to that teaching, you would be able to discern, he says, if, it's, if I'm from God or if I'm just from speaking of my own he said, it's, so it's that willingness, that soft heart, that repentance to submit themselves under His authority, under His teaching. And that is so important. That is so important. Everything hinges on, though, belief. Belief. They first must believe. They first must um, take that step and, and believe. And obviously it's a work of God in their life, but it's, it's, a, it's something, it's a responsibility that man has to do. Belief. Belief precedes action. Now get that. That's an important element. Belief precedes action. We come to church because we believe. And what we can do 
We can get a lot of people in church that do not believe, and that's not what we want. We want belief. We want them here because they believe. They're devoted to Christ. They're following Christ. Belief precedes action. We do things based, we as Christians, we do things based upon our belief. It is our belief that drives us. Our belief that this is the Word of God. Our belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Our belief that that God is our Heavenly Father. All of that drives us. Listen, those are elements. Those are things that the world does not understand because it does not believe. Belief is the first element. It's elementary Belief is the spiritual element that changes everything. Now listen, as a church going out into the world, that's where we must start. We give them information. We give them truth. We present these things uh, to the world. And And we push them. Believe in Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Return, turn from your sinful ways and, and turn to Christ. Some will respond. Uh, the verse that I read yesterday, this is, this is so good. In the context of being persecuted by the world, you know what? Some will respond. Christ himself was, was in this environment of rejection, environment of, of unbelief, and yet some, some believed in him. Listen, we, we serve the God of all comfort. This is a verse that I read yesterday at, uh, at Jack's funeral. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Listen, persecution is going to come, but listen, we serve the God of all comfort. The comfort that he's talking about here is comfort as a result of being persecuted. Is persecution from the world who, uh, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we have been comforted ourselves by God. For just, the, just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance... The suffering of Christ are ours in abundance. We haven't really experienced that in America yet. But folks, let me just tell you, you need to prepare your mind for that. It will come. But listen, we serve a God of, of all comfort. And sometimes he will, he will, he will allow people to believe. He, he will bring people to Christ and we get to witness that. And, and, and we say, and we rejoice with the, with the angels in heaven. Yes, this is so good. And God is a comforting God in the midst of, in the midst of suffering. Now, I want to point out one more thing here. Let's go back to John chapter 7. I just want you to see Christ's response. In the midst of this swirling dervish of what's going on in Jerusalem at this time, all of these people and all of these factions and all of this unbelief and, and rejection of Christ, what is Christ doing? What is Christ doing? In verse 19, he simply he confronts their sins. He said, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carry it out or carry out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And he goes on and he's defending his ability to heal on the Sabbath day. So he's confronting sin in verse 24. He confronts them on their their shallow judgment, their lack of understanding of God's word in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge according, George, judge with righteous judgment. You have to have the, the right frame of reference before you judge. And then he establishes in verse 28, he establishes authority. He's always coming back to this. He, he cries out and says, look, I am from my Father who is in heaven. And boy, that gets them angry. They want to they kill him. In verse uh, 30, they want to seize him. But the key thing is in verse 27. Here's what I want you to see. Now, on the last day, now, he comes up about halfway in the, in the festivals. And, and on the last day of the festival, the great day of the festival, Jesus stood and cried out, saying... Now, this is a festival known for its lights. Its lights and, he's, and, and, and it's actually water as well. 
the drinking they were dipping, and that was a that was a vital thing in the desert for the children of Israel. But he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's a picture of belief, coming to Jesus and believing and and drinking. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Those who would believe in him. Belief. Belief is key. Belief is so important here. Now I want you to notice here that Jesus is giving an open invitation. An open invitation to Israel. That he was the Messiah. Please come to me. And he's talking about on a spiritual level. Not, not some superficial physical level. But on a spiritual level. And I will, I will uh, fulfill every need that you have. Only Christ can do that. But it's an open invitation, listen, to those who he knows is going to reject him. He knows they're going to reject him. In fact, it goes beyond that. He has orchestrated, God has orchestrated that Israel was going to reject them, reject him as a Messiah. We see that really all throughout the New Testament, Romans chapter 11. He knew that they were going to reject him. And it was designed, in fact, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So He gave His Son to die. He knew that He was going to die. That was, the, that was the purpose. To die. So God, we step back and see even the bigger picture. Satan's not in control, but God is in control. And God is using these, using all of these elements. And, and man is simply doing his own nature. Satan is simply uh, performing at his own nature. And yet God is in control of this whole thing. He knows that they are going to reject him. Yet Christ gives an open invitation to Israel. Christ gives an open invitation to Israel. Everyone, whoever comes... He cries out saying, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let him come. That's an open invitation to those who are going to reject him. Listen, our message today to the world is an open invitation to the world. Let anyone come. We're not closing the invitation of Christ. Christ opened the invitation even though He knew that Israel was going to reject Him. Even though he, he, it was in God's plan that Israel would reject Him. That's powerful. We need to get that. We need to understand that. We have a message that goes out to the world. To the world. Look at the results in verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. This is the guy. This is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Others were saying, this was the Christ. So others were saying, surely the Christ, uh, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee. They're still, they're still struck with this. Has not, in fact, here's, here's what they say. You could see the irony here, and John's pointing this out. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? See how shallow they... They didn't even do their research. They didn't even check into who this guy was. But look at verse 43. So there was division. Division occurred in the crowd because of him. Division occurred in the crowd because of him. Listen, that's where Israel wound up. Divided. They didn't know this 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 um, undecided group in the middle. They still didn't know. They were just divided. They didn't they didn't get it. Now, one verse that I want to leave with you, and we'll close with this. Here's what Paul says in the midst of this. What did Jesus do? He just preached. He preached. Believe in me. Believe in me. Just kept preaching. Belief. Come to Christ. Paul said this, and this is, this is the, the word for our time. This is, this is what we need to learn for our day in the midst of, of this unbelieving world. Here's what we need to remember. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the gospel that can change lives. It's that good news of what Christ has done for us that can change lives. It is that gospel, he goes on, for it is the power of God to salvation or for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's, that's what we do. When it comes down to it, folks, the power that the church has is, is one thing, and that's the gospel. That's the message. That's why Jesus, in the midst of confusion, he just kept going back. Instead of persuading the crowd, instead of, instead of trying to get more and more followers, he just said, believe in me. This is the gospel. This is essential. After belief, everything else will follow. Everything else will be okay. Everything else will line up. When we go out into the world, we don't, we're not trying to moralize our country. We're to evangelize our country. We're to disciple all the nations. Now, we're going to have enemies. We're going to have those that reject us and persecute us. There's going to be some, some that believe. And the, the majority, the majority though, is going to be just undecided. Oh, I don't know, you know. It's kind of caught between two worlds. And they never really make up their mind. And they can't unless God works in their heart. So therefore, before we even go out, we must pray. Lord, work in their heart. Lord, change their mind. Lord, cultivate that heart so that the seed, when it's planted, can germinate and grow. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, I, I thank you for your, your grace in, in my life. I thank you for the faith, the gift of faith that, that helped me to overcome the world and its sinful thinking and being led by Satan. And Lord, we just thank you. It is not of ourselves. It is all by grace. Lord, I, I thank you for those that are here. I pray, Lord, that this message would be clear enough that we, we understand our position in this world, not only our position, but our purpose in this world. And that's just to be faithful. Even among, amongst the, the confusion, amongst the, the disbelief, the rejection, the enemies, there's so many things that we can get off on, but it comes down to belief. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be able to present the gospel which has the power, which has the power to save lives. I thank you for entrusting that and making us ministers of reconciliation, that we can, we can reconcile God and the world together through the gospel. Help us to do our part. Help us to play our role as your children in this world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.